So today we are continuing our series uh, titled All the Feels and looking at the broad range of human emotion uh, through the lens of the Psalms and the way that the various psalmists express those various emotions to God. And uh, we see over and over in Scripture God talking to his people, but in the Psalms we get to see mankind talking to God and expressing frustration and anger and sorrow and sadness and joy and delight and all the things in between. And so that's what we've been focused on. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at joy and particularly the idea of living joyfully, living joyfully. You see, joy is often confused with happiness. Uh, Some people might think that they're synonymous, but they're really quite different, and they they have some similarities, but there's some key differences between joy and happiness. I saw a quote uh, that I thought was really perfect. I don't know who said it, but uh, it says, joy is in the heart, happiness is on the face. Joy is in the heart, happiness is is on the face. And I was listening to something else. I listen to books all the time when I'm driving around. And, and the guy said, you know, you can actually trick yourself into feeling happy. Try this with me, okay? Everybody all at once, smile, a big, broad smile. Not some cheesy, thin, half smile. A big smile. And take a deep breath. <sighs> Don't you feel better? There's actually psychology and science behind this that so many times when we are happy or we feel good, we smile. And there are muscles and nerves and everything that get contracted in our face, and they send signals back and forth to the brain such that when you feel good, it sends a signal and you smile. But you can actually work it in reverse. And so when you're like feeling down or frustrated or angry or something like that, I've got a little um, thing in my car that says breathe and smile. Because every now and then I get frustrated when I'm driving around and I get a red light when I'm in a hurry or I'm running behind or whatever and I look down and I see that and I take a deep breath and I smile and I feel better because I work the system backwards and it actually works. Um, So that's happiness. Happiness is kind of on the face. It's kind of external. It has to do with the circumstances, the people, the events, the things that are happening in our life. And so happiness often comes at us from the outside. It's, It's our response or our reaction to the things that are going on around us or are happening to us. Joy is in the heart. Joy is an internal orientation. It's a choice. In fact, it's as fruit of the Spirit. So uh, when Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Joy is something that the fruit of the Spirit. So that means that when the Spirit is within us, it produces that fruit. And when the Spirit of God is at work in us and is kind of running the show, controlling us, joy is a natural outgrowth of that. It's something that comes from within us outward rather than coming from outward into us, which means that you can experience joy without necessarily experiencing or being happy. You can choose joy. But any time that you experience joy, you'll also experience happiness. Does that make sense? You can have one without the other. And the important thing to understand about that is if you chase happiness all the time, you'll get neither, right? But if you pursue joy and if you decide to live a life of joy and to live joyfully, you'll get both, right? The great prophet Mick Jagger nailed this one on the head. I can't get no 
satisfaction, right? When you chase satisfaction, when you chase happiness, when you chase those things, you don't actually get them. But when you decide and you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and work through you, you find that joy becomes the, the internal, uh, it's almost like joy is the thermostat, happiness is the thermometer, Does that make sense? You set the thermostat. You can choose joy. You can decide joy, and it will influence the world around you. Thermometer just tells you what's happening. That's happiness. Does that make sense? And so uh, it's interesting that joy can, can be a reality dependent upon, or I should say, aside from the circumstances. You can, you can have joy. You can experience joy. I've seen this. If you've been on a mission trip, you see people who have absolutely nothing They've experienced tremendous loss. They've never had the benefits. They've never had the circumstances that would produce happiness. And yet they have this deep and abiding and resounding joy, even in the midst of that. And you marvel at it and you think, what is going on? And I would say that, in fact, joy, the deepest joy, often comes out of deep, deep sorrow. That that as one author said, Christian Wyman, I just love this, he says, joy is, in a way, sorrow's flower. That sorrow plants a seed that grows into joy. And he wrote that in a book called My Bright Abyss. It was one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years, and it's kind of heady and it's kind of hard to follow, but he tells his story of receiving a diagnosis of, of severe chronic pain. And they thought it might be terminal, and at different times they thought, you know, they'd given him less than a year to live, and he had to face his own mortality at the same time as this chronic, severe pain. And yet that brought him to faith, that brought him back to his faith that he had abandoned from his childhood, brought him back into the fellowship of church, brought him into all these things, and he said that the joy that he experiences now, even in the midst of chronic pain, of of his own mortality, was sort of the flower of that deep, deep sorrow that he experienced. I see some heads nodding. I know that, that some of you know what I'm talking about. In fact, last week we talked about sorrow and sadness. You might remember we looked at the five stages of grief uh, that you go through as you experience some sort of loss or some sort of pain. And we talked about how you go down in, in, in anger and frustration kind of takes you down. And then there's sort of a reckoning that takes place at the bottom And you make your way back up. And it's as we move back up through the acceptance and the empowerment and finding meaning and purpose in the pain, in the loss, we have an opportunity with that upward trajectory to take new ground, to to ascend beyond where we started from. And when we were talking about the, the happiness baseline, just a quick review, that there's this idea that when something good happens to us, uh, we come back down to baseline. We have a swing up. And then a recovery period, we come back down to baseline. Same thing when we experience loss or pain, we go down and then we make our way back up to baseline. But there was this idea that if you have an idealistic vision for your life, if you pursue the ideal, if you pursue progress, you don't have to come all the way back down each time you experience something good. You can capture some of that gain and sort of set your life on a positive trajectory. And so when you see that idealistic vision for your life, one thing I meant to do the first time was to draw a couple of lines. And you see on that one going up and to the right that the the bottom of the big swing down there on the left side is actually above all the minor joys of just having a ho-hum baseline existence, not pursuing upward momentum. And if you track that out a little bit farther, you you see that even, even... 
the bottom of that next one on the right is way above the peak of happiness if you don't pursue and don't seek out a, a, a life with an idealistic vision that says God is good, that good things are happening. There's a positivity that is inherent in this line that's moving up and to the right. And that's all mixed up with joy and gratitude. We talked about gratitude a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they are linked together uh, inextricably. And that's why we have to start this message. Before we get into Scripture, we have to start this message with a little bit of a word study. And so I want to walk you through uh, the New Testament words for joy and grace and gratitude because they, they carry such incredible Insights, And I know that the Psalms are in the Old Testament, but we are New Testament believers and, and we are living in the realities of the New Testament. And so we're going to look at a f- couple of Greek words. And uh, if you're wondering, why do we always look at Greek words? Well, the New Testament wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And so that was the language of the day. I think if it was written today, it probably would have been written first in English and circulated that way and then translated. But it was written in Greek. And so oftentimes there's additional insights that can be gained by looking at these Greek words and seeing links between them, and you'll see what I'm talking about today as we move through this. So the first word that I want to look at is the word that we translate as grace. The word that we translate as grace. Now, how many of you have heard that, that grace is the forgiveness of sin? You ever heard that association made? That's a, that's a true association. It's a little narrow. It's a little limited. Anytime that a sin is forgiven, there's grace involved. Uh, but maybe you've also heard it described as when you get what you don't deserve. Does that resonate? You've heard grace referred to as when you get what you don't deserve. That's broader and better. Um, but I think the best definition is, is simply a gift or a favor that has been bestowed upon. And it has to do with this idea, this Greek word charis. They don't say it charis. They say it charis. This Greek word charis really means an inclination or favor towards someone. It's almost this idea of leaning to give a blessing, that that you're reaching out, you're extending yourself, you're inclined to bless. And that's the picture that we get of God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he was inclined towards us, that it was unacceptable to him that the jewel of his creation would be separated from him for eternity. So he was inclined gracefully to give us a blessing, to give us his favor. And so grace is that blessing, that gift, but it's really important that we see the inclination behind it, that we see the intentionality and even the eagerness of God to give us his grace. And so then Jesus comes onto the scene, and John says that he was full of grace and truth. This Jesus, God himself, God in a human flesh, is full of grace and truth, and he is coming for you, coming for us, inclined toward us to bestow on us a blessing, to give us his favor. This is all wrapped up in grace. He is favorable towards you. He came for you. With intentionality, he was inclined towards you to give you a blessing, to share a blessing with you. So that's grace. That's charis. All right? The next word we want to look at is the word that we translate as to give thanks or that we translate as gratitude. And that is the Greek word eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. Say it. It's kind of fun to say. Eucharisteo. 
eucharisteo. Do you see underlined right in the middle is the Greek word charis, that, that it's, it's wrapped up in there. This idea that, that to give thanks or to receive with thanks, literally it's a word picture like so many of these Greek words, uh, to be thankful for God's grace. It's a, it's a response to grace, to, to give thanks, to receive with joy this grace of God. And when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we see him constantly giving thanks. In fact, many of the, mater- the, the miracles that he does are preceded with him giving thanks. And the Greek word that is used there when it says that before uh, he, he distributed the elements of the Last Supper, he gave thanks, he eucharisteo. He gave thanks for the bread before he broke it and distributed it. Before he fed the 5,000, what did we told? He took the five loaves and the two fish and he gave thanks. And then he began to distribute them and there was plenty for everyone. When he arrives at Lazarus's tomb and Lazarus has been dead for three days and he says, roll away the stone. And they say, but Lord, you don't want to do that. It's not going to be a pretty sight. It's not going to smell good. He says, just roll away the stone. And then he gave thanks. He says, Father, I thank you. He gave thanks. He preceded the miracle by giving thanks, by recognizing God's grace, by this awareness and this acknowledgement that he had of the giver of grace. In fact, that word eucharisteo is where the more liturgical uh, mainline denominations or the Catholic Church, they celebrate the Eucharist, the Eucharist. And they're pointing back to the Last Supper that we just took that we just partook in today, when Jesus gave thanks, just before he conquered sin and death on our behalf, he said, this bread represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. This cup represents my blood, which is going to be spilled out for you. But he gave thanks. He gave thanks for that. He recognized the grace that was in it. And I have to wonder sometimes, was he full of grace because he was always giving thanks? Or perhaps he was always giving thanks because he was full of grace. I don't know. It's the chicken or the egg thing. And maybe it's both and and not either or. But we do know that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we know that he was always giving thanks. That he lived a life of gratitude. And so he lived a life of joy. That's our third word that we're going to look at. And it's the subject of our message today. It's the Greek word kara. So you've got charis, which is grace. You've got eucharisteo, which is to give thanks, and you have the Greek word kara, which is joy. Joy is at the root of grace, and gratitude is the fruit of grace. Do you see the progression there? We start with joy. Joy leads us to grace. It helps us to see grace. It helps us to experience grace, and then we have the fruit of grace, which is gratitude in our hearts towards it. This Greek word really means gladness or delight or an awareness of grace. That's the literal word picture uh, that, they, that they give as they talk about what this kara means in the Greek language. And so I would have to ask you if an awareness of God's grace, an awareness of the truth of God's grace doesn't bring you joy, what does? What does? It doesn't get any better than this, of our sins separating us from God, keeping us from him for eternity if he didn't do something, but he did do something. He was inclined towards us. He came to us. He had intentionality, and he had favor on us, and he gave us his grace, and that produces incredible amounts of joy in us when we see it and when we embrace that truth with gratitude. 
And I have to imagine that Jesus was the most joyful person who ever lived. We don't think of this all the time, but one of my favorite pictures uh, of Jesus is this one. It's on a big, huge wall. It maybe is 20 feet tall and 12 feet wide in this atrium at a a church in Wichita. And uh, it's just titled Jesus Laughing. And I love that he's got his head back and he's laughing. And he was so full of grace. He was so grateful all the time. He experienced joy. He lived a life of joy and gladness. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he bore the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, but I believe he was joyful, and I just love this image of him with his head back laughing, and I think he was a kick to be around, and I think too often we go to the somber and the, and the sorrow and the mournful image in our mind, and we don't allow ourselves to imagine Jesus laughing. And yet I believe, just, just to the core of who I am, that he was a joyful person and a wonderful person to be around. And so I want you to see the incredibly strong link between gratitude, grace, and joy. And the idea that when gratitude becomes a habit, it delivers us from a prison cell of self-pity and constant complaining. When gratitude becomes the habit of our lives, and every time we're tempted to complain about something, every time we're tempted to wallow in self-pity, we instead redirect that and find something to be grateful for. We have an awareness of God's grace, and that leads to joy in our lives. That lifestyle of gratitude unleashes unleashes joy in our lives and makes us enjoyable people to be around and we have a positive wake wherever we go. You know the wake that follows a boat? Have you ever thought about what's the wake that follows me through life? What is the experience that people have as I leave the room? Is it relief? Oh God, he's gone. Or is it, man, I'm a, I'm a little, my baseline just went up a little bit because I was hanging around with such and such or so and so because I was hanging around you. There are people in my life that they always leave a positive wake. Every time I'm around them, I just feel a little bit better. And there are people in my life who have the opposite impact on me. And yet my goal, my desire, my, my intention is to leave a positive wake as much as possible. That, that I would lift people up. And you do that by living a life of joy, by living joyfully. Because when you're always so happy, when you're always full of joy, people are going to ask, what's the deal with you? Why are you always so stinking happy? And that'll be your doorway. That'll be the window that you can walk through to share about the hope you have in Christ, to share about the joy, what that joy is rooted in. It's an awareness of God's grace. And the evangelism becomes very, very easy when you're always living a joyful life. But you're always kind of down in the dumps and you're, you know, shaking your fist at people in traffic and you're, you know, complaining in the grocery store line. It's kind of hard to share your faith. You're like, ah, I better not right now. I don't, I don't know that that's the witness I want to have. But if you live joyfully, and that's what we're going to look at next is Psalm 16. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 853, if you have one of those blue hardcover Bibles, you get this, this picture in Psalm 16 of, of living joyfully, of David making a decision that he's going to live a life of joy. And this was one of the first psalms that, that really gripped my heart. And I was planning to preach on Psalm 146 for this message. But as I was reading through the psalms recently, this one kind of gripped my heart again. Uh, this is one of the first passages of Scripture that I memorized with the last four verses of this psalm. And, uh, and this is David just 
just talking about the joy that he has and celebrating the joy that he has. And here's how this song goes. I'll read through the whole thing and then we'll look at a few verses in particular. But he says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see see the progression? It starts in verse 2, I believe. When he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That is a recognition of God's sovereignty. That is a recognition of God's lordship. That is a recognition of God's grace. It's a declaration that you are my Lord, not just my Savior. You're my Lord. You're calling the shots in my life. Solomon said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think it's also the beginning of true and lasting joy. That when we put our faith and our hope and our confidence in him and him alone, what joy is ours? What joy belongs to us? It's contrasted in verse 4 with this recognition that the sorrows of those will increase who turn after other gods or who run after other gods. When you chase other gods and other idols, when you chase happiness, when you chase satisfaction, you end up with sorrow. Because nothing satisfies us the way that God satisfies us. Nothing satisfies us at the soul level the way that God satisfies us at the soul level. So chasing after anything else over and above him is a recipe for disaster. But when we put him first and when we seek him first, all these other things are added unto us. That's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Then verse 5 and 6 zeroes in on the idea of contentment and peace. He says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You see the contentment, the peace. Content in the present and faith for the future. What I have is enough. I know what is mine to look forward to. I know I have an inheritance. And this is all pre-Christ. This is all before heaven was thrown open to those who put their faith and their hope and their trust in Christ. How much more so for us that in Christ you have enough. In Christ you are enough. In Christ you're doing enough. In Christ we have everything that we need for eternity. And yes, there will be ups and downs in this earthly existence. But eternity is secure. 
Remember, this here and now is a blip on the radar screen compared to eternity, which has been made secure for us who are in Christ. Then verse 8, look at this. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Verse 2, he says, you are my Lord. Then verse 8, he comes back to that. I have set the Lord always before me. Not my spouse, not my kids, not my job, not my hobbies. Those are not always before me. The Lord is always before me. And in my relationship with him, he directs my attention to those things various times for various reasons. But when you put those things above him, when you put your spouse or your kids or your job or your hobbies or your favorite sports team above him and you sacrifice for them more than you sacrifice for the Lord, when you give your allegiance to them more than you give your allegiance to the Lord, then you're setting yourself up for disaster. But he says, I have set the Lord always before me. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The circumstances will change. I will experience loss. I will experience pain, but I will not be shaken because I have set the Lord always before me. Not something else. Not even myself. And that's where we often fall into trouble is we try to set ourselves before the Lord. We try to say, God, bless my program. I need to go over here. I need to do this. Bless my program. And God's saying, no, let me give you my program. And when our prayer changes from, God, I need you to bless my program or this thing's not going to work out, to God, give me your program. Show me where my program and your program don't line up so that I can modify my program to make it your program. We have made a big step towards living joyfully in this life because so much of our anger and so much of our frustration comes from these unmet expectations that many of them we were never meant to have in the first place. We were never meant to expect that in the first place. We'll talk about anger and frustration next week, um, so come on back for that one. But when we live a life that says, God, give me your program, and help and give me the grace to accept it. Then we live a life of contentment and joy rather than a life of frustration and anger. And this beautiful psalm concludes in verse 11 with this idea that you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There is a progression there. It starts with the path of life which is joy in his presence. He will fill us with joy in his presence. Regardless of our circumstances, we have the opportunity to enter into the presence of God at any time, in any place. He is always there. He has promised he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And the end result is eternal pleasures. Eternal pleasures at his right hand. You see, the abundant life that Jesus died for you and I to have, the abundant life that he came to give to you, follows this path of life, joy in his presence, a recognition of his grace, wholeheartedly embracing that with gratitude and living a life of joy in the presence of God, in the constant presence of God. When he came back from the grave and he defeated sin and death, and he conquered them through the power of the resurrection. What did he say to them? He said, all authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go wherever you go and make disciples of all nations. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. There is joy in his presence. And eternal pleasures at his right hand are ours to look forward to. So what's the bottom line today? The bottom line comes right out of this verse. 
that the fullness of joy is found in the presence of God. The fullness of joy is found in the presence of God. If you want to experience the fullness of joy, you will only ever find it in the presence of God. If you feel like joy is lacking in your life, spend more time with God. Spend more time in his word. Spend more time in fellowship. Spend more time in worship. Wasn't worship beautiful today? Just beautiful. I was moved. I was touched. As I so often am. I felt his presence. But I feel his presence alone in this sanctuary when it's perfectly silent. And I walk through the aisles and I walk through the chairs and I touch each one and I pray and I pray for this church and I pray for the people because sometimes when I'm walking through your section, you come to mind and I pray for you and I sense his presence and there's joy in his presence. And whenever my joy starts to, to run low, I know that I need more of God's presence. The fullness of joy is found in the presence of God. He is always available. He is always available to you. Choose his path. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that grace is available to every single one of us. And every single one of us are in need of it. Grace is the path of life. Gratitude is how we receive that. And joy is how we live that out. May we live joyful lives. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we... We thank you indeed. There's so much to receive with joy, so much to be grateful for. Help us as recipients of your grace to live joyfully, to live lives that are full of joy, full of your presence. Help us to leave a positive wake everywhere we go, to be enjoyable people, to be around that that might be our first testimony, our first witness for you as we go into all the earth, that we would take your joy into all the earth. There is so much sorrow. There is so much sadness. The world desperately needs joyful people who are intentionally focused on reaching others for Christ, giving them a place to belong, and helping them grow in their faith. Help us to do this, Lord. Help us to spend the time with you to experience the fullness of joy that our cups would run over with joy. Everywhere we go, we bump into people and slosh joy all over the place. Help us, O God, to live joyfully, to point people to you, to receive with gratitude all that you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together and let us sing this response to God, to his word of his great, great faithfulness.